1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I had a lot of questions when I first showed up at an Anglican church. I had never heard Peter's little explanation, so I thought the robes were pretty weird. And the prayer before communion. Most of all, all the Bible readings. They felt random and haphazard. Most of them were never commented upon throughout the service. I was confused. I eventually learned that the readings that you all hear on Sunday aren't aren't chosen by the pastors. Uh, We follow a prescribed set called the lectionary. The lectionary appoints four texts every service, and at Church of the Cross, we do all of them, which I've learned to love. Occasionally, all four of the readings will point to one event, like on big Sundays, like Christmas or Easter. But most of the time, it's more subtle. There will be a common theme between them, but you have to listen or look pretty closely. Take this Sunday for example. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and the gospel text all describe a dichotomy, a a contrast, an antithesis, an either or. Moses speaks to the people of God. He says, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Either love the Lord and prosper or serve other gods and face a more bitter end. Either or. Jesus does the same thing. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, but I tell you. Either you privilege Jesus as the revealer of God's word, or you you hide behind human traditions. Over the past few weeks, We have been looking with relative depth at the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians, and Paul, he makes a similar move. He speaks, on the one hand, of the natural person, or he sometimes says, people without the Spirit. And these are people who don't know the Lord, who look for 
fullness in the wisdom of this age. These are people who are one diet, one election, one podcast, one therapist away from being made right with the world. And on the other hand, there's people of the Spirit, the mature, he says in chapter 2, verse 6. And Peter, he talked about this group last week. He said, people who walk in the Spirit walk in the way of the cross. They're strong because they realize they're weak. They're wise because they don't feel the need to keep in step with every cadence of culture. They're not afraid to say, in the words of John Wimber, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? But there's a contrast. That's what I'm trying to say. Some people have the Spirit, some people don't. Now, some of you might be thinking, that seems pretty one-dimensional, or too simplistic, too narrow. And Paul agrees with you. He adds nuance in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He describes a third type of person. People who are in Christ, but think and act as if they have neither known the Lord nor the Spirit. And I want to reflect on that distinction that Paul makes this morning, that that third category. And my hope, or at least, yeah, my hope, is that this would be comforting for the struggling and that it would be sobering for the coasting. I want to say three things. I want to say something about being stuck, something about being hungry, and third, a mess of help. Being stuck. I'm going to talk about these categories once more. It's important to set the stage. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, describes people who savor the surprising, counterintuitive, grace-filled word of the cross. But this, of course, isn't true for everybody. For some people, the idea of Jesus, whoever he was, meeting such an awful end does not offer any meaningful solution to people's actual problems. But we have the mind of Christ, Paul says. We know that the cross is somehow like ground zero for all human mending. We, first person, plural. That's how the chapter ends. Now, what I want you to see is that in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul walks that back. But you know what? I can't assume that with you, brothers and sisters. I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. That's weird. It's weird because in chapter 1, Paul says that this community in Corinth had been enriched by God in every way, and they did not lack any spiritual gift. But here, two chapters later, he says, you are not people who live by the Spirit. What's gone wrong? Well, in a word, they were stuck in non-Christian ways of being in the world. Paul emphasizes how, how trapped they are by using that word worldly, or sometimes you'll see fleshly, three times 
in as many verses. Now, some of you have been around church a long time. You've probably heard diatribes against worldliness. And oftentimes it involves like alcohol or, or sexual morality. And Paul is not above doing that same thing. But here, the worldliness, the fleshliness of the Corinthians is, is psychic or it, it's spiritual. You know, you can be as pure and sober as the day you were born and still be worldly if your heart is filled with jealousy or if you're locked in competition with others. And this was the manifestation of, of the worldliness in Corinth. There was a kind of civil war with one side cleaving to Paul and the other lionizing Apollos. Now, I talked quite a bit about this division uh, three weeks ago. Not that any of you remembered, but I am not going to repeat myself. Uh, suffice to say that, and this is important, these were not like substantive theological disagreements. The schisms in Corinth were the result of people jockeying for status, people trying to climb the social ladder by claiming a privileged relationship with these leaders. Now, I think that the status game that was played in Corinth does not have a direct parallel in Church of the Cross. No one is lining up to follow me. You're welcome to. It might be very helpful, but I haven't gotten that email. I do want to say, though, that questions about status and the thirst and desire for status is still a very important and, most of the time, a very depressing feature of our lives. And to prove it to you, I want to share a couple things I discovered on the internet this week. First, I found an Australian provider of luxury purses and handbags and backpacks literally called Status Anxiety. You can pull a status card out of a $200 leather wallet and justify your existence. I also read, uh, this is more important, an article in a great magazine called The Point, The Point Magazine, by a woman, Agnes Collard, who's a philosophy professor at the University of Chicago. And the article is called, Who Wants to Play the Status Game? It's worth Googling and reading in full. But here's a quote. A recent acquaintance told me that the least stressful interactions in his life were in the army because status relations were immediately evident in common knowledge. You just looked at how many stripes the person had on his shoulder, and that was that. Status negotiations complete. By contrast, in the extramilitary world, confusion reigns. Billionaires wear hoodies. It is high status to pretend you are low status, and no one is sure who exactly the elite refer to. When status must be renegotiated in every interaction with strangers, people end up spending a lot of time asking and being asked, just who do you think you are? The mystery is why we feel required to pretend that this is not what we're doing. Status. Status games. They were alive and well in Corinth. I would suggest they are alive and well here. And the desire for it and our insecurity surrounding status is a sign of our worldliness, a sign that our perception of what is valuable, of what is good and true and beautiful, 
has been shaped by forces that have no connection to Christ, that we're stuck in patterns of thought and behavior that simply don't match what God has made true of us in Jesus. Now, I cannot emphasize this enough, it's the root cause of status games, the worldliness that I really want to focus in on, not the game itself. I said earlier that I wanted this message to be hopeful for people who are struggling and sobering for people who are coasting. I don't intend to put anyone in, that, in a specific category. I think it's probably more honest to say we occupy both in different areas of our life all of the time. There's something comforting in knowing that these people in Corinth who had direct access to the Apostle Paul would fall so quickly into patterns of worldly behavior. I'm a fan of the, uh, the National Basketball Association. My wife is from Philadelphia, so I used to, I've been to quite a few 76ers games. And there was a phrase, a motto, that the team employed during an extended poor period of play, trust the process. Don't be discouraged by all of the negative results. Be confident that the plan in place will work. I think those of us who are struggling, those of us who are at least aware that we're struggling, can say a similar thing. Trust the process. God will bring to completion the good work he began in us, our own resistance to it notwithstanding. And if there was not room in the Christian thing for people who are stumbling, then none of us would be left. Something comforting, but there's also something sobering. Did you notice? You probably did not. But there's a a change in verb tense in the middle of verse 2. You are not yet ready for solid food, it says. Indeed, you are still not ready. Paul is initially referring to the visit he made to Corinth, like three to four years before this letter. And back then, their immaturity was to be expected. But now, they're still not ready. They're still acting like the gospel isn't true. And this is the warning. Our lives in Christ can stagnate. We can get stuck in patterns of worldly behavior. Thinking we're free, we can, in fact, be captive. Psalm 119, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commands, for you have set my heart at liberty. We all want to move freely in the life of faith. You know what gets in the way? Being stuck. That's point one. Point two, being hungry. There's an interesting distinction made between the milk and the solid food or the meat. This is a metaphor, right? That distinguishes between simple and advanced teaching, milk versus meat. Many pastors have received discouraging emails, assuming this is the case. Well, if that's what Paul intends to say, we know 
what he meant by milk. Paul resolved to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he shared with them. What's the meat they're not yet ready for? Something else? Do milk and meat refer to different, like, types of content? I spent probably an irresponsible amount of time trying to figure this out. (laughs) And in large part, to be honest, it's because the notion that we start with Jesus and his death for us and then somehow graduate to more advanced levels of knowledge, that just didn't sit right with me. And that seems to go against what Paul says in this very letter about God choosing the foolish people to shame the wise. But like, you know, the words are still there, so we have to figure out what to do with them. Uh, A lot of scholars suggest that this language about milk and meat was something the Corinthians used in earlier communication with Paul as a way to complain or brag or like maybe a little bit of both. They were saying something to the effect of, all right, Paul, well, you gave us the milk, but we've moved on to the meat, the real stuff, the advanced knowledge, true wisdom. Why didn't you give us some of that? And Paul is saying something like, come on, Corinthians, really? Milk and meat? Jesus, and his death for you and the life that you live in light of that is is both. It's sweet and it's substantive. And you don't move on from it to another advanced level. And the fact that you don't see that, the fact that you are turning from Jesus and his death for you to some other source of food is more evidence of your worldliness. The fact that you're not satiated by the gospel is not signaling that you are somehow more deep spiritually than others. It's a sign that you are still an infant. As if to say, this contrast is not between different diets that Paul gives to smart people or beginners, mature Christians or worldly Christians. This is the same contrast between people who live by the Spirit and those who don't. Now, Maybe you buy my reading of the passage. Maybe you don't. Maybe I lost you five minutes ago. The point that I'm trying to say is pretty simple, and it's this. To be an immature Christian is to be a hungry Christian. Worldliness, being stuck in patterns of thought and behavior that belong to this present age, it leaves you hungry. It inhibits your ability to digest the bread of heaven. And you know what it's like to be hungry. It's terrible. You're unhappy, you're tired, you're volatile, you yell at your kids, you curse at red lights. Hunger makes us apathetic, it clouds our vision. No one enjoys being hungry. It's a terrible way to live. But when we are stuck thinking and acting as if the gospel is not true, Something inside of us, indeed, perhaps the most vital part of our inner being, starves. Being stuck. Being hungry. What do we need? A mess of help. Are any of you familiar with that phrase? It's uh, by a song 
It's a song by the Beach Boys called, You Need a Mess of Help to Stand Alone. I need your voice for my song to sing, Brian Wilson writes. Please realize I'm not half alive without a mess of help to stand alone. And what I've tried to do so far in this sermon is hold up the word of God like a mirror to our souls. Our our status games show how stuck we are. And we're left starving, searching for food in all the wrong places. But look, diagnosis is not that hard, nor is it particularly helpful. That nagging sense of failure causes us to either rebel or rationalize, to hide our true selves and wonder whether or where assistance can be found. Where do the stuck, hungry among us go? Psalm 119 describes how wonderful it is to walk in the ways of the Lord, how joyful it is to seek God with our whole heart. That's a very different picture than what's painted in 1 Corinthians 3. And I, I don't know about you, but that is where me and my uh, limitations and my spiritual hunger, that's where I want to be, someone who delights in the law of God. Well, after kind of rehearsing how wonderful it is to walk with God in this way, the psalmist, he, he, he snaps back to reality, to quote Eminem. I, uh, if you watch the Oscars, you'll know that was not as random as it appeared. I will keep your statutes, O Lord, he says in verse 8. Do not forsake me utterly. Lord, I can't do this without you. I need a mess of help to stand alone, to get unstuck, to live by the Spirit. I need help. And the final thing I want to say is that it's in that cry for help that the gospel lives. There is no more creative, life-giving force in the universe than love in the midst of deserved judgment. And that is the milk and the meat of our Christian faith. Jesus died and rose for you as you actually are, not the person you want to be or feel you're supposed to be or are striving to be. And when you take Jesus's unconditional, positive regard for you in your actual and concrete life seriously, then you will run in the path of God's commands. You will feast in the house of the Lord because he has set your heart free. Let me pray for us. Our God, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And we thank you that by your spirit, 
we taste the newness of your work in our lives. And my prayer, God, is that you would put wind in our sails this morning, that you would encourage us and propel us forward in the life of faith, knowing you are on our side, knowing that you look upon us with favor or help us realize and, and come into meaningful contact with your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.